you have your Bible with you, or you'd like to use one in the back of the pew in front of, we, in front of you, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark, New Testament book of Mark, chapter 14. This morning we will be reading verses 26 to 52, Mark 14, verses 26 to 52. If you're a guest with us, we are closing our way to the end of the book of Mark as we've been listening to him teach about his kingdom, what it means to live with him, to follow him. And we are entering those final moments, final hours of Jesus's life. And today we're going to look at a very familiar scene uh, as we watch our king in the garden. With all that in mind, let's read Mark 14, verses 26 to 52. This is the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with them Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. I walked into a store of gods. In Queens, New York, on many corners, you can find little shops where you can buy any god or idol that you want. As we were ministering to an Indian church planner, he took us into the store right by his church plant. In their religion in India, they have 300 million plus gods. And in the store, you can go through the aisles and pick whatever suits you, whatever kind of God you need for this season in your life. So I was taking it all in, browsing through like you would any other store, started looking through the artwork, and what do you think I found? A picture of Jesus. Just like a picture of Jesus you'd see around here or in one of your homes. And if you ask why a picture of Jesus is in this little shop of gods, they'll tell you Jesus is a great God. Jesus is a great teacher. He shows the way. He's just one of 300 million. And that scene, brothers and sisters, is a picture of our everyday life in this world, in this culture. You might not be able to find a shop like that in Carl Junction, but in my neighborhood and on your street and in your workplace, we serve over 300 million different gods. And if you try to have a conversation with somebody, the only wrong move you can make is, is dare to say that Jesus is the only way. That the 300 million others are false and that the one you believe in is true. Our culture will tell you, you can believe whatever you want. You can believe in Jesus. Just let me have my 300 million. But friends, on this night where Jesus, this great teacher in the words of many, is worried, is stressed out, is distressed, and praying to God for God the Father to give him another way, we see beyond any doubt that the answer is no. Brothers and sisters, when we look at the night in the garden, what happens in the garden shows us that only Jesus can save. When we see the failures of the disciples, and when we see the obedience of Christ, and we see the prayer between the Father and the Son, there can be no doubt Jesus is the one and only. Now, the way I want to show you that is by contrasting Jesus to all of his followers on that night in the garden. As we focus on the disciples, I want to show you five traits that show up in the disciples' life that prove that these brothers cannot offer us the way without Christ. When you look at these 12 disciples, the first thing you're going to see 
is how proud they are. And we're not going to read the whole passage over again. I'm going to show you the verses as we go along, though. Look at verse 29 to just get a sense for the pride that is in these brothers' hearts. Verse 29, Peter says to Jesus, Even though they, that's the other disciples, even though the other disciples all fall away, I will not. I ran into a Facebook post this week about things people experience as new parents and the reality of being a parent. And one just really stood out to me. I wanted to share it with you. One mom posted this. My three-year-old asked me what my favorite animal is. And when I told my three-year-old it was a penguin, she yelled at me, no, it isn't. And then she yelled at me until I agreed that my favorite animal was a bat like hers. P.S. I don't like bats and I don't like three-year-olds. When we hear stories like that, it's kind of cute. Oh, little three-year-old. But friends, inside that response, yelling at the mom to change her favorite animal is the seed of pride. It's the seed that I know better than even my mother who's given me everything in my life. And that's nothing to laugh about. Thank you. Jesus is telling the disciples what is going to happen. He tells the brothers, you will all fall away. He quotes scripture to back it up. He quotes Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. The prophet says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then in verse 28 of Mark, Jesus promises that even though this is going to happen, it's not the end. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, after I am raised up, after I am resurrected, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter, the three-year-old, stomps his foot on the ground and says, no, you won't. Even if everybody else falls away, I'm not going to do it. You don't know me. I am strong. Peter's pride shows up three ways. Think about Peter's response to Jesus. First, Peter throws his friends under the bus. Basically, in his response, Peter is saying, I know John's going to fall. Thaddeus, yeah, look at him. But what about me, Jesus? I'm special. His pride misses the good news of the resurrection. In verse 28, Jesus says, after I rise, and it goes straight over Peter's head. He doesn't hear that good news. The only thing he hears is that he is going to fall. His pride continues to show up when he ends up basically calling Jesus a liar. He basically declares that Jesus is a false prophet. Jesus quotes Zechariah, says he's going to fulfill it, and all Peter can say is, no, you won't. When Jesus gives Peter the details, the rooster's going to crow twice and you're going to fall and deny me three times, the one thing Peter cares about is not Jesus, but defending himself. 
mean, just imagine, after the three years Jesus has poured into Peter, his protege, the leader of the twelve, and, and Jesus clues him in on this secret about what's going to happen, and Peter just defies him and stomps his foot down and tells Jesus how wrong he is. You know what that's called? Pride. But Peter's not alone. Let's, let, let's give Peter some credit. You look at verse 31, the last sentence, they all said the same. All 12. The second trait you're going to see in these disciples that prove that Jesus is the only way, you see the disciples' weakness. They're, they're so weak. Look at verse 37 and 38 in particular. When they're in the garden, Jesus came and found them sleeping. That's Peter, James, and John in particular. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. As the hour of the cross gets closer, the pressure mounts. We'll see it more in a minute, but even Jesus is, is feeling the pressure on his shoulders. He needs to pray, and Jesus needs a friend. That's why he's asking these three guys to come with him. He needs a partner to get him down, to, to pray with him, and, and to encourage him in this moment. But when he's done praying and comes back, none of his friends are awake. After spending three years with these guys, Peter, James, and John can't even force themselves to stay awake for 60 minutes. You ever notice how when you want to go to sleep, you can't? And when you want to stay up, you just want to go to sleep? That's exactly what I think is going on with Peter, James, and John. But they can't even control their body enough to just stay up for one single hour. After all the predictions Jesus has made, happens three times, and Jesus points to the root of the problem in verse 38. He tells them, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. One minute ago, they're claiming to Jesus, they're never going to fall. And now, Jesus is proven right, they can't even stay awake. They're not up for the challenge. And remember, this isn't the 12 now. This is, this is the three leaders of the disciples. This is like the hall of fame of Jesus' disciples. And they can't even do it. It's not exactly a confidence booster right before things get violent. Because then Judas shows up in the garden in the midst of this weakness with a military unit ready to take Jesus out. And Judas gives Jesus a kiss to point him out, and the guards move in, and you see these guys are not only proud and not only are they weak, but they're desperate. Look at verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Mark doesn't tell us this, but if you read in the book of John, you get to find out this is Peter again. Peter is on a roll right now. 
He's blasting Jesus to his face, telling him he's wrong. He's falling asleep on the job. And now he's going Rambo. As the disciples try to defend Jesus, they end up looking more like the mob than they look like the king. Can you listen to that one more time? As the disciples try to defend their savior, they look more like the worldly mob than they look like the king. Instead of remembering what Jesus said about the meek and the peacemakers, they're fighting fire with fire. Instead of being confident in Jesus and in his promises, they're afraid they're going to lose. Instead of having a peace that trusts God even in the midst of suffering, they take matters into their own hands and resort to violence. Instead of being steadfast and holding firm and hanging on to the promises of God, they're desperate. Does any of that sound familiar? Because in this moment, brothers and sisters, when things have gotten tough, too many of us have gotten desperate. What does Jesus have to say? Jesus tells them, I'm not a robber. I've never been violent. You've sat under my teaching in the temple. You know who I am. But you know what? Put down the sword. Let God's word be fulfilled. Let God strike the shepherd. Friends, Jesus, unlike these other guys, never desperate. He held firm to the promises of God. As Jesus submits to God's will, from now on, he makes the journey alone. And to show you that, friends, when you look at these disciples, every single one of them disloyal. Look with me at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. Peter left them. John left them. James left them. This wasn't just Judas. Friends, in one sense, Judas gets a bad rap. He's the one who betrayed Jesus, but every single one left Jesus. As James Edwards points out, you can see this in the chapter. I'm going to point to a few verses. In verse 23, the end of it, they all drank the cup at the Lord's Supper. In verse 31, they all pledged to die with Jesus. But in verse 50, they all flee and desert Jesus. And then as we close this passage... You see one more trait in the disciples. They've been proud, they've been weak, they've been desperate, they've been disloyal, and now they're naked. Look at verses 51 and 52. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Anytime somebody's reading this book or studying it, this verse stops them. And everybody's thinking, what in the world? 
What is going on here? Friends, let me tell you, this wasn't some comic relief. Mark's not throwing this scene in here so that you'll chuckle a bit in the midst of a very serious story. He's also not encouraging you to play guess who. What a lot of people like to do is stop here and spend hours creating theories about who the naked man is. And some of them are quite intriguing. The most popular one is that it's Mark. And Mark's throwing this in to say, yes, I fled Jesus too. And that's possible, but I have no way to tell you if that's true or not. Because Mark's not trying to get us to play guess who the villain is. Mark uses this to show us that it's not just the 12 who left Jesus. The desertion, the, the, the fleeing, went beyond just the 12 brothers. When Jesus was arrested, it was every man for himself. Jesus was left alone and everybody went to save his own neck. And actually, this was prophesied. This was predicted in the Old Testament. Amos chapter 2, verse 16. The prophet Amos says, He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. And that's exactly what we see. The mighty, the men who thought they could muster up the strength in themselves to stand with Jesus are all fleeing away. And maybe some of them have clothes on, but they're all empty-handed. Nothing to hang on to in themselves. Friends, Mark exposes who we are when we turn away from Christ. All of us look like this guy running in the streets, leaving their clothes behind. Foolish and ashamed. Tim Keller points out that in the Bible, nakedness is always a sign of shame and disgrace. And do you know where that theme starts? The garden. In that first garden, God gives Adam and Eve the command. They rebel. They flee from their king. And as soon as it happens, the text tells us, the minute they sin, they both look at each other and realize they're naked. And then in Genesis 3, verse 10, Adam tells God, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And that shame, that sense of fear that Adam experienced, is what led this young man to flee in the streets of Jerusalem. The shame of fleeing Christ. Friends, when we spend all of our time trying to figure out who the boy is, we miss the point. And let me bring the point to you. David Garland writes, It keeps us from asking ourselves, what would we do when angry mobs wave swords or guns in our faces? What would we do on that night? We would flee. This text challenges us to confront our pride. How many times have we, like Peter, heard Christ say something and we stomp our feet down and say, no, you are wrong. This is the way. 
It confronts our weakness. We've tried to do things on our own strength, and we fall asleep within an hour. Friends, the only way we stand before God is naked and empty-handed. We cannot dress ourselves in our own strength, in our own character, in our own righteousness, and stand at all. Just like the garden where Judas kissed Jesus, brothers and sisters, we all left him. Romans chapter 3, verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Friend, as I share that, can I encourage you this way? Don't respond like Peter. When you hear that bad news that we've all turned away, don't respond like Peter and say, no, everybody else, but not me. Don't miss out on the good news that there is salvation in Christ because you feel like you need to defend yourself. Look to the only one in this garden who never failed. Jesus remains faithful even as he experiences human weakness. That's what unlocks this entire event. Jesus is going through the same kind of weakness everyone else is, but he leaves the garden perfect. Verse 33, Jesus, Mark tells us, is greatly distressed and troubled. In verse 34, Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus, in his weakness, doesn't respond with pride. He doesn't fight for himself. Jesus, in his weakness, gets on his knees and prays. And he asks God the Father to give him another way. Jesus, the perfect son, bows before the Father and says, if there's any other way that we could accomplish this plan, let's do it now. Let's call the audible. And then what does he say? But not my will, your will be done. Friends, if you want any proof that Jesus Christ is the only way, it's that unanswered prayer. Because if 300 million other gods could bring salvation, if, if one other God could bring salvation and God didn't answer this prayer to Jesus, then he was an unfaithful father. But because Jesus is the only way, that prayer went unanswered for you and me. This, friends, is Jesus facing real temptation. Jesus is not just going to die. Martyrs throughout history have died deaths like Christ and did it with bravery, without fear. But Jesus is trembling with weakness, uncertain if he's ready. And the difference is no martyr ever took the wrath of God for sin. Jesus Christ did what only he could do as the Son of Man. His loyalty to his Father in the garden was greater than his desire to defend himself. And the next morning at the cross, Jesus dies with two robbers right next to him, two brothers who deserved to die. And Jesus is humbled by the scorn. He's weakened by the violent blows. And he's naked. Our Savior, exposed, empty-handed, 
taking our shame. That's why Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But as he told Peter in the garden, that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus rose from the grave to prove he has the power of God and and the loyalty to his Father, to his word, and to us to make all things new. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And friend, Jesus did what he did in the garden, and he did what he did on the cross so that you could have life with him forever. And so that you could have life with him in a new garden. But the call to receive that kingdom, to receive that life, is to recognize your weakness, to recognize your pride, to recognize your nakedness before God, and humble yourself. That's why James writes in in James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. No one gets to heaven telling Jesus, I'm okay on my own. Only the people who are humble enough to know that Jesus is the only way for them to be right with God have any chance of salvation. Romans 10 verse 9, because if you confess, if you agree with God about your sin with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, if you are without the Lord this morning, it's that easy. It's to agree with God who you are without him. It's to admit on your own you have no hope. And it's to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection are enough to count for you. And if you confess that and believe that, God is faithful to save you today. My friends, I want you to take a look at those five traits. These five traits, the good news in all of this, Yes, this is who we are before we know Christ. But friends, the good news is these are the kind of people that Christ saves. If you're one of these, God can save you. And not only that, these are the kind of people the Holy Spirit changes into something new. So if you're one of these, God can make you into something new. Because if you look at these low-down scoundrels that I've talked about in the garden, what happens after Pentecost? They used to be weak, but now they preach in power. They used to be proud and tell Jesus he was wrong, but now they are humble and dependent on the Holy Spirit, waiting for the Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost. They used to be afraid and desperate, but now they're so bold, they'll go to jail and die for Christ. They used to be unfaithful, but now they're loyal to one another, faithful to the Lord, even in the midst of persecution. They used to be naked, but now they've got the full armor of God, dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Friends, what does this say about our God? Friends, our God can take nobodies and change them into somebodies who can make a difference and bring glory to his name. Why does he choose to work this way? Why did he choose to have a garden where everybody except him would fall? 
Why does he choose to have a church where it's only by his power and his spirit that anything is accomplished? Paul tells us the secret in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. Consider your calling, brothers. He's talking to the Christians, brothers and sisters. Consider your calling, your life. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friend, is that your story? Is that your song? Friends, remember what Christ has done to dress you in his righteousness. To make you holy as he is holy. To give you strength from his spirit in your weakness. Friends, this is why we sing that hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Friend, as we leave this morning, what can you and I do after watching Jesus in the garden? What's our takeaway? What are we supposed to leave with? First and foremost, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, you can praise God for the work he's done in your life. If you're one who used to be proud and you've been humbled, if you're one who used to think you were strong and now you know you're weak, you can praise God for that change in your life. Friend, you can imitate Christ and depend on God in humility and prayer. Look to that prayer between Jesus and the Lord and garden and consider, have you prayed that way, what you're praying for? Have you been able to pour out your heart, your blood, your sweat, your tears, and pray, this is what I desire, but then allowed God to change your heart and your desire to be able to say, but not my will, your will be done. Friends, listen, prayer is not a way to change things. Prayer is a way for God to change you so that he, as he does those things, you walk with him. Friends, as we consider Jesus in the garden, by the Holy Spirit, call others to this good news. Show them the power of God who can take a weak person and give them strength. Show the power of God that can take a person like Peter, stomping his foot in the front of the Savior, and turn him into an apostle of love and grace. Show them the work that God has done in your life. Have you ever let someone in on your old days? We like to get buttoned up and come in here and forget about the days before. Forget about the days before the Spirit came in our life. Friends, it's the contrast between those old days and the days now that shows God's power and glory. 
Don't hide the days before Christ in your life. Confess them to your neighbor, to one another, to demonstrate that you aren't the hope, it's Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Above all else, friends, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Friends, like the brothers in the garden that day, the pressure is mounting. The temptation to fall increases. The Lord declares that in the last days, many will fall and turn away, like on that night in the garden. But by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we can guard the good deposit entrusted to us and stay faithful because he is faithful. And at the end of the day, we can all declare nothing that we have done, nothing that no one has done except for Jesus is what makes us right with the Lord. Because what happens in the garden, friends, shows us Jesus is the only answer. He's our only hope. Let us pray.